Liminal Spaces was a six-year, welcome-funded project at Edinburgh Law School which scrutinized regulatory systems that support human health research. The vision of the project was to deliver the first-ever integrated, interdisciplinary, and cross-cutting analysis of health research regulation by confronting the gaps between documented law, relevant ethical and social theories and concepts, and research practice. To mark the end of the project in March 2021, the principal investigator, Professor Graham Laurie, sat down with members of the Liminal Spaces team to discuss their research findings. Hello and welcome to this podcast on the role of research ethics committees in health research regulation and the concept of regulatory stewardship. I'm Graham Laurie, Principal Investigator of the Liminal Spaces Project, and I'm very pleased to be joined by one of my colleagues, Edward Dove, who did his PhD with us on this topic and recently published his monograph, available open access with Edward Elgar. Welcome, Ted. Hello, Graham. Nice to join you. So, um, as a first question, Ted, can you tell us about why you decided to focus your research on the role of research ethics committees or RECs? Yeah, it's actually a bit of a of a circuitous story, I suppose. Uh, when I came to uh, Edinburgh in January 2015, it was, of course, part of your Liminal Spaces project. And if memory serves, um, in your uh, application to the Wellcome Trust, this PhD studentship that you had uh, proposed was one on consent and consent as a regulatory device. And so the expectation was when I uh, came to the to the law school and was preparing to do the three-year PhD. It was going to be uh, a thesis revolving entirely around consent, and um, that was the plan. And that's how things began. Um, and in the course of of conducting early stage literature review and reading through uh, various uh, monographs on consent, particularly the biomedical context, I really began, had this kind of struggle, <laughs> almost existential struggle or crisis, saying. What could I possibly contribute uh, to the field of, of law uh, and health law more, more generally about consent, given how much ink has been spilled? Um, and so, so I remember, sir, as we had some conversations about that early on in 2015. And, and one of the topics that had always been on my mind um, since uh, the days when I was working at McGill University in, in Montreal was the role of ethics committees. Uh, in particular, from a regulatory perspective and the kinds of work they were doing. Um, and my sense was in the kind of preliminary investigations I've been conducting uh, when I had these conversations with you was that they were relatively under-researched in the UK, uh, in, including those that are within the NHS. Um, and so thanks to your flexibility and and the, the fact that I think they were under-researched, it just led to an, a, a very natural um uh, transition away from consent as a regulatory device to ethics committees as regulators and ultimately, as, as I discovered, uh, former regulatory stewards. Yeah, that, I mean, that's it's, it's interesting that you um, you you remember it that way because um, for me, I, it was very much the sense of um, wanting to help you to get, kind of explore what which kind of regulatory space you were interested in. And yes, we said, we said in the original application, a focus on consent, but welcome are very kind of flexible themselves and, and how they support projects like this. So we were interested in um, novel regulatory spaces. And then you were the one that came with the idea of, of, of RECs. And as you say, they were um, pretty under, uh, under researched at that time. So it was really interesting to sort of say, okay, you know, consent, we'll all touch on consent in some way or other, but um, it's a really, you know, really interesting to, to, um, to look into more deeply. And, 
Tell us more about how you went about your research, because it's really quite interesting, that show kind of methodology and your approach. Well, I mean, I, I, one, of the, one of the joys I had in doing this PhD was that I had a buddy interest in conducting empirical research and empirical legal research, if I can use that term more generally. And I didn't have too many opportunities prior to doing my PhD in conducting um, qualitative or quantitative research around various topics in the law. And I don't know, I mean, I can't remember now how the PhD studentship itself was designed, but I suspect very open-ended and broadly defined such that one, a student could have conducted a, a, a traditionally doctrinal form of research or a more empirically uh, a focused one. And I suppose when it came to um, formulating the overarching research question for, for the PhD, it, it seemed to lend itself naturally to empirical investigation, or to put it differently, I could not have thoroughly answered the research question uh, without conducting empirical research. So the, the, so the first kind of realization early on was that this is a, a topic and indeed a research question that necessitates empirical investigation. And then the second secondary question to follow from that is, okay, well, what are the specific methods and connected with that, the underpinning methodology that will drive that investigation? And um, while it seemed to me that the kinds of things I wanted to do were along the lines of somewhat equivalent to an ethnography in the sense of embedding myself in research ethics committees and their connected slash management regulators, namely the health research authority, and interviewing um, research ethics committee members, regulators like those at the health research authority and so on, that the methodology itself might need a slight variation, primarily because what I was looking at was not exclusively or indeed very much of law as we, as we traditionally understand it or define it, but rather this whole space is much more about regulation. And so even if the methods themselves are are, are, are not novel in the sense of conducting semi-structured interviews or, or, or performing naturalistic observation of various sorts of activities over a period of time. The kinds of, uh, the underpinning methodology, the sensitizing concepts, the, 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 the theory that was driving those methods, I think was something different from what we traditionally associate with either anthropology of law or socio-legal studies. And so that's what led to this, this development of anthropology of regulation. So, and can you re- remind us, and for the, for the listeners, can you tell us what, what were your main research questions you were trying to answer by these methods? So the, at the highest level, and this is not exactly how I formulated the research question, but it was along the lines of what exactly is going on? That's the best way to say it. I mean, I because there is, there is what I thought was an, an, an relatively um, underexplored or un- unexplored um, amount of, of research involving NHS research ethics committees. For most, I just wanted to know what was going on. And I think that's the kind of question that necessarily invites oneself to conduct empirical investigation. But I should, I should situate that question within the context, in, and in particular, the, the temporal context in which I was conducting the PhD, which was at the moment of a changing regulatory environment in the UK particularly in, in the area of health research regulation, which is why I think also the Time Being the Liminal Spaces project was particularly uh, 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 fortuitous. And what I mean by that is um, NHS research ethics committees are not novel creations. They've been in existence in the UK since the 1960s. But what was changing really from the turn of the millennium, but in particular in, in, the, in the decade of 2010, through, through, you know, arguably 2020, 
where both statutory instruments uh, and, and law, as well as the creation of the Health Research Authority itself, that had a driving effort to streamline the regulatory environment for health research to make it more conducive for researchers to conduct various sorts of activities on UK soil, be that more clinical trials returning to the UK after they had left because of what was seen as a very bureaucratic red tape driven environment that made it too expensive and costly to conduct clinical trials or otherwise. Um, And so the overarching research question was at the most general level, what exactly is going on? But more specifically, it was about how are ethics committees interacting with this new, this new statutory regulator called the Health Research Authority? And how do they see themselves interacting in what might be perceived as a changing regulatory environment that namely not only seeks to protect the rights, interests, and welfare of research participants, as has always been the case in the development of, of law and regulation, but also arguably a regulatory environment that now seeks to also promote research activities and to make the UK a more friendly place in which to conduct research. Yeah, because as I, as I recall, this was also against the background of quite a lot of scepticism in, in sectors of the researcher community about the role and value of RECs and the sense that um, you know, they, they weren't there to pr- promote research, but they were there to sort of, <clears throat> sort of tick boxes and sort of uh, dot I's and crosses, cross T's rather than helping to promote socially valuable research. So that was, a, 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 I think, one of the sub-questions, as I recall, that you wanted to explore as well, is well, what's actually going on? And is that, is that scepticism? Is it, is it founded in any way? Or is it um, a perception that, that's, that, that's groundless? Um, what, 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 did you, what did you find out about that? Well, so indeed, I, th- I think one of, so again, thinking about that kind of overarching general question, what exactly is going on here? Um, there has been a history, not just in the UK, but really around the globe, of researchers, um, uh, uh, you know, ha- having a lot of opprobrium against research ethics committees and seeing research ethics committees as thwarting the approval and slowing down of their other ethical research. And in other words, they aren't seen as a help, but only a hindrance. And that had been the case in the UK over a number of years. And so one of the sub-questions was, um, in my interactions with these ethics committees in terms of being an observer and in speaking with them, is there a sense that researchers, when they come to the ethics committee for their face-to-face interactions with Rex, see them, position themselves in an adversarial role? Is this one where researchers continue to perceive ethics committees as a bull, as a, as a kind of you know bulwark against their research and thwarting their research uh, or not. So that was, that was, if I could say almost a, a somewhat of an expectation that I was expecting um, when conducting the research. And amongst the other findings that, that, that came out of the research was rather than this being uh, an adversarial relationship between researchers and ethics committees, Rather than ethics committees being perceived by researchers as uh, you know entities that that only hinder research and don't help it in any way, um, quite to the quite to the contrary, and and and, and as an unexpected finding, the relationship was from 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 what I found much more collaborative and helpful, uh, and indeed having both sides of that of that. Uh, relationship working towards a common goal, which is, yes, protecting the rights, interests, and welfare of participants. So thinking about the ways in which research activities can be designed 
be it from the information sheet and consent form to the to the various methods that are being proposed, recruitment, uh, statistics, and all those sorts of things that go into to, to research design, all the way through the end of the research life cycle. So writing up of results and sharing of results and making making sure that all those sorts of information and activities are are as done are as transparent as possible. Um, but also throughout the relationship, thinking about ways in which the research can be promoted. And so that's where you see really the twinning of, of those two objectives that were always thought to sit in, in a bit of tension with each other or somehow sit in an uneasy relationship, be, be they in a hierarchical relationship where it's protection first and promotion second or otherwise. But in fact, both researchers and research ethics committee members, and indeed I would say they're managing regulators, at least in England, the Health Research Authority, view them as really intertwined. And so it's thinking about how can we work together in this collaborative relationship in a way that, yes, requires ethical oversight, and I think very few would be opposed to an ethical oversight role by some entity, but how we can work together to make sure that your research does go forward, is green-lighted rather than red-lighted, but is done in a way that is uh, protecting of the rights and welfare participants, but also gets off the ground and, and, and is done for the public benefit. So that's, that's really interesting. And we might sort of characterize that as the horizontal relationship within the regulatory space, i.e. between the REC and the researchers. Hmm. What about the vertical relationship between the RECs and their regulators, like the HRA or, or um, other um, uh, regulatory bodies? What did you find out about that? Well, that was a, another kind of interesting, perhaps unexpected find, you know, though with this, with this particular aspect, I didn't really go in with a preconceived notion, unlike I did with an expectation that there was going to be a lot of criticism against other committees. And in fact, that didn't turn out to be the case, at least, some, at least amongst the researchers that I observed. I think at a general level, there's the UK's in favorable position having the creation of the Health Research Authority in late 2011, which itself was in response very quickly to the Academy of Medical Sciences critical report from 2011 that provided a number of recommendations to improve the regulatory landscape in the UK. And so I think a lot of people you speak with internationally uh, recognize the value in creating a regulatory authority like the Health Research Authority that is designed primarily to help research, to help researchers, to help research move forward, and ideally to work uh, as is, as is they're, they're mandated to do under law under the CARE Act 2014 to work with other regulatory authorities in the UK to coordinate their functions to try to avoid duplication and overlap and inconsistencies. So in principle, I think this effort in the UK to centralize practices, to coordinate their functions, and to try to bring research ethics committees within the NHS in a, in a sort of harmonized manner is positive. What was the unexpected finding was in speaking with several REC members um, was that sometimes how the HRA interacted with RECs themselves could be not so much of a harmonious collaborative relationship as was the case between RECs and researchers, but at times could be a bit more um, fractious. I would not go so far as to say anything like acrimonious, but certainly at times it could be fractious. And, and in particular, there was sometimes some concerns which is not too surprising when you have a centralizing managing oversight body like the Health Research Authority or otherwise. When they would have new guidance, new directives, sometimes the communication channels are felt to be um, one-sided and not collaborative in the sense that you would have between researchers and ethics committees. Now, 
part of that I suspect is, as I say, not too surprising. Um, and whenever there's a case of a kind of hierarchical regulator, oversight body and management regulator, there will probably be a, a bit of pushback when they're perceived to be top-down directives. Um, but I think there is something to consider still um, in terms of some of the communication practices the HRA has done in the past, at least in, in, this, in that particular decade in which I was con conducting the research, that might be improved. Um, but again, I should also say that this was done in the, in, the, in the period of a number of regulatory changes, the instantiation of the HRA approval process, the move to a paperless system within REC practices. Um, all these sorts of changes were happening in, in the two years or so that I was conducting the empirical research. So that partly colors, I think, the comments that were made by, by several participants uh, whom, I've, whom I've interviewed. So. I think I think it, there's a, a bit of that nuance that needs to be injected in that finding. Hmm. It's interesting though because you're, you're, I think what, what you're saying there about the, the horizontal relationship, which is arguably one of <clears throat> co-production between the RECs and the researchers, and then the vertical relationship, which sounds as if at least at that time there may be may not have been as much co-production of regulation as we would have want. Um, that, that, that created some some sort of tensions, and it, it picks up a, a theme that we we. Um, identified in another part of our research, which was the Delphi study, when we engaged with um, stakeholders um, involved in health research, both the regulation and doing health research. And one of the key messages and themes that came out there was this idea of um, there needs to be more co-production of what we mean by research and what research does to promote um, sound uh, work. Did, how, how, do you think, how do you think your, your work on Rex fits into that finding, Ted? That's it, a great question. I mean, I think, you know, one of the challenges with, with ethics committees, and this was another kind of finding that, that, that came out of, of the research, is that they really are a black box. And I think part of that is due to their um, amorphous nature. They've never really been put on a statutory footing outside the context of clinical trials regulation. There is no statute that brings RECs into creation, explains what they are as a legal entity and so on. And that's, again, why I was positioning the self more as an anthropology of regulation than an anthropology of law. They remain amorphous. And um, that, can, that can be a strength, but could also, of course, be a drawback. I think where it becomes a bit more of a challenge is when thinking about um, uh, normative sort of outputs and thinking about co-production when you are of an uncertain uh, legal status and you operate as a black box, it can it can make it more of a challenge to formulate recommendations. Um, all that said, I think there has been a lot of progress already over the past 10, 15, 20 years within the UK in terms of how ethics committees operate. But thinking about co-production, and of course, one of the main findings from, from my research on the concept of regulatory stewardship, even in this black box amorphous state, there are, there are opportunities for which regulatory oversight bodies like the health research authorities, but even higher up. So Department of Health and Social Care, the chief scientist's office in Scotland, uh, and so on can provide opportunities to chart a framework for regulatory stewardship where various sorts of recommendations that came out of the research can be instantiated um, more clearly, more directly. And that links with co-production, in particular thinking about enhanced regulatory connectivity, which was one of the, one of the core aspects that came out of the investigation, 
thinking in particular about the relationship of science, law, and ethics, and how they are inherently intertwined, and that rather than regulation trying to carve out science from ethics in the ethics review, or even the role of law, rather thinking about how they can be brought together in a connected way, recognizing that, for example, in the making of an ethics opinion, it is necessarily going to be the case that those charged with that decision-making power ought to, and indeed need to consider the role of ethics, sorry, the role of science and law in the making of that ethics decision. So it's thinking about how can we make that more, uh, in, 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 as at a conceptual level, more intertwined, but also then thinking about the connection across regulatory sites of authority. So be that data monitoring committees, be it the MHRA, so the drugs regulator, be it data access committees, and so on, rather than seeing them as siloed entities that each operate their own kind of fiefdoms of control, thinking about this all comes back to research and the research life cycle, and how can we, in our in our positions of decision-making authority, and indeed our 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 our, our our general kind of um, uh, role as a reg- as a regulator in research, help researchers and others move through that life cycle all the way from protocol design through knowledge translation and so on. And it's interesting because you're, you're picking up there on, on, on an often um, made criticism of, of RECs is that they, they can tend to be laws unto themselves. And yet your research engaged with four different RECs and your findings were pretty consistent in terms of the attitudes with which they approach their role. Um, and so there, so even although they, they might be seen as fiefdoms unto, their, unto, unto themselves, there was quite a lot of consistency with respect to how they saw um, their relationship um, with researchers in particular and their responsibilities to promote and protect. Absolutely. I, you know, I think one of the, again, this kind of, this, this, this links back a bit um, to that finding about an adversarial relationship and all the criticism levied against Rex over a number of years, not just in the UK, but really around the world. As part of that, I was thinking back to the his history of Rex in the UK when there were well over 200 across the country um, and where they really were see, seen as operating as them, somewhat connected to district hospitals or strategic health authorities, you know, whatever they were called, given the numerous reorganizations of the NHS over the years, but, but not connected to any sort of central regulator in any of the nations, um, and really operating based on the rec chair's whim um, and predilections and idiosyncrasies. Um, and I was still somewhat expecting that. And... And, and the findings emerge such that even, even though they are black boxes in the sense that we really don't know the making of an ethics decision. I could sit in on a committee and, and observe 10 to or, you know, 12 to 18 members and discussing the application form and the protocol and attendant documents, and they will have their face-to-face interaction with the research applicant. But the but the process itself is the ethics opinion, as one of the participants said. Given all of that, one would expect that each of these black boxes would operate in a, in a kind of splendid isolation, not knowledgeable of what the other REC is doing at anywhere else in, in the country, even though they all have the same SO standard operating procedures and governance arrangements and the rest. You're still going to be reliant upon the the, the, the varying ethics opinion and, 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 and disposition of each of the ethics committee members. So you would expect a, a fair amount of difference, or to put it another way, heterogeneity. 
But in fact, there was a tremendous amount of, of homogeneity um, across the wrecks I observed. And I, and I should say they, I observed wrecks both in Scotland and in England. Um, and I, and I believe it was, um, in fact, three, three, uh, or sorry, five, five wrecks that I observed, three in England and two in Scotland. And in terms of what they were charged with reviewing, quite a number of different forms of research activities. Some really focused on phase one clinical trials, some focused on research involving children. They were flagged, to use the, the, the technical jargon, to, for different sorts of things. And yet there was a lot of homogeneity. And I think that says a lot about the, uh, several things. One, I think it says a lot about the centralizing force that the HRA and its equivalents across the, 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 the devolved administrations have done to try to standardize the process of ethics review, given that an, a researcher only needs to receive one NHS Research Ethics Committee opinion, and they can apply in principle to anywhere in the country, from Southampton up to Aberdeen and Northern Ireland if they want, so that these various overseeing regulatory authorities would want to make sure that the process and the standard is relatively consistent across. So that's one reason why, in fact, I think there is a, a fair amount of homogeneity, even though they operate in splendid isolation, more or less from each other. You know, there's no kind of annual retreats for ethics committee members uh, where they can share practices and things like that. I think another reason is, is and this brings it back really to the anthropological side of things, there's a tremendous amount of ritual in ethics review. And we often find ritual patterns are present in very rationalized settings like hospitals. Um, and I think it was, it was very apparent to me that REC members adopt a variety of rituals, you know, these patterns or institutionalized symbolic actions that manifest throughout the process of ethics review. And that ritual process plays a crucial role in structuring how members formulate comments on an application, and indeed approach their decision-making. So I think for, for all these sorts of reasons, this is why even though they are black boxes, yes, and, and do operate more or less in a kind of splendid isolation and are, and are probably very protective of that space of, of, of black box and splendid isolation. Nevertheless, there's a lot of homogeneity in their practices. And I think that finding should make central regulators very happy to know that there is if a researcher applies to a rep in Southampton or one in Aberdeen or anywhere in between, they're not going to experience something fundamentally different from one rep to the next over the 86 or so that exists across the UK. And if listeners want to <clears throat> read more about the anthropological perspectives on this and ritual, you can sort of check that out in, in Ted's book. For the last part of our podcast, I want to turn now to regulatory stewardship. You've mentioned that a few times, Ted. Um, what kind of beasts are these wrecks then, and how did you make sense of them in terms of this concept of regulatory stewardship? This links back again to that overarching research question, which, to, 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 to phrase it uh, you know, in plain language, what exactly is going on? I wanted to get a sense as to where wrecks fit within this, the, the overarching regulatory space of health research. It, it was clear before I, I began the empirical research that wrecks play a crucial role. Arguably, they play a gatekeeping role. We know that invariably, either under the law through clinical trials regulations or various forms of health research through policy made by the UK governments, that if, if one wants to conduct health research, in particular involving the NHS in some capacity, NHS patients, NHS data, they must, under law or policy, receive ethics committee approval and, and from an NHS rec. 
So we know they play a crucial role. It's the rite of passage, if you will, for a researcher in, in launching their research project. The, one of the very first steps is receiving ethics committee approval. And to me, that's a regulatory process. Rex exists to steer behavior of researchers in a socially desirable manner, namely one that is ethically virtuous and promotes the rights, interests, and welfare participants. So to me, that's a form of regulation. What became apparent in the empirical research was the role that RECs played, not just as regulators and gatekeepers and all the rest of it, which does exist, but also linking to this objective of research promotion. They help, and in particular through certain members, be it scientific officers in Scotland, REC chairs, which exist uh, across uh, RECs, and REC managers, the administrators of, of these committees, prudently guide researchers and sponsors across various thresholds in regulation. And this, of course, regulatory uh, ethics approval is, or research ethics approval is an important threshold. And failing to reach and cross that threshold means the right of passage cannot go forward. There's a risk of failure or destruction, which of course is an element of liminality. There's no guarantee that it's a positive thing to cross over that boundary and that threshold. And so stewardship, this prudent guidance, became apparent to me as, as, as a key aspect of what research ethics committees do and, and certain actors within RECs do to help fulfill regulatory objectives and ultimately collective betterment, namely thinking about the larger research enterprise. And so there was various sorts of things that the HRA, that RECs uh, do to help uh, promote, or, or I should say, fulfill that, that principle of research promotion. Um, you know, and as I say, that could be seen in the role that scientific officers play in Scotland. Uh, it could be seen at a more general level from the guidance the HRA puts out on its website for researchers. So that's a relatively low level of stewardship. But certainly through things that, for example, the HRA has done in the past, the creation of their application managers, for example, this general notion of how can we help researchers navigate through complexity and that in particular, those that straddle regulatory regimes, you know, so the research project might straddle data and tissue or devices and treatments of various sorts. All these sorts of things are wrapped up in, in this idea of stewardship and thinking about, OK, if research exists as a life cycle and we know RECs play a role at that very beginning stage. One, is there an opportunity for them to play a role beyond that very beginning stage of research? and beyond the kind of annual review process that they already undertake? And two, what other actors might be involved thinking about it in a co-productive sense to help the research move across that life cycle and that life cycle which necessarily will have multiple points of thresholds and uncertainty where it's not a guaranteed uh, case that the research cross that threshold and keep moving forward. And ultimately, I think that's what we want. We recognize that most research is conducted in the public interest. And we recognize that research, for the most part, is a public good. And so given that, given that there is, I think, a, a general support of this idea of, of research promotion, or might I say ethical research promotion, stewardship necessarily is an important concept that ought to be better recognized and supported so that we can, we can continue to make the UK a favorable place in which good research is conducted that ultimately will lead to collective betterment and improvements in human health and well-being. So it sounds as if your research actually fundamentally challenges the caricature of regulators as being sort of obstructive, difficult and um, uh, anti-researcher and anti-research. And actually this, this idea of stewardship is one all that, that's particularly viable in helping us to reimagine what's happening in these regulatory spaces. And if listeners are interested in exploring 
uh, regulatory stewardship further, we have a policy brief on our uh, website that you can check that out. Ted, I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, in light of everything you've found out and all the, th the deep thinking that you've done, what do you think needs to change within the health research regulatory environment for the future? That's well, a profound question. My sense, looking at one aspect of health research and or health research regulation, namely the aspect of research ethics governance, there's not a need for uh, fundamental reform or some sort of step change in how research is done. I think <laughs> given that part of this research was already looking at what I call next generation regulation, a, a slew of changes uh, that had emerged over the past decade, it wouldn't be helpful to advocate for yet more fundamental reform and whole scale change. That I think would cause too much uncertainty and probably lead to more drawbacks than benefits. All that said, I do think that there is room for, let's call it tinkering around the edges or improvements that uh, can, be, can be called refinement rather than fundamental reform. And so some of the things that I advocate in particular is the promotion of an ethics of space. So an opportunity for research ethics committee members, in particular chairs, or those connected with them like scientific officers, to have more um, flexibility in the work that they do to work with researchers and sponsors, either before they submit their ethics application or indeed well beyond it, to help them think through the various challenges they might face, be they ethical or otherwise. I also advocate, for example, uh, a recommendation that was proposed well way back in 2004 that Scotland adopted, but other nations did not, namely the importance and the creation of scientific officers. I think there's an opportunity, for example, for the Department of Health and Social Care, the Health Research Authority, to think about the important role that scientific officers play in helping researchers and others work through these various thresholds. And I think they've been looked at very favorably in Scotland. And I think there's opportunity for other, other nations to take those up. Uh, and then finally, I think there's opportunity to put stewardship on a more statutory footing, like has been the case in New Zealand with their uh, State Sector Act 1988, which uh, encourages the whole, sec the whole state itself to foster a culture of stewardship. And I think putting it on a statutory footing would be no bad thing. Um, but it's thinking about how stewardship can be embedded in various sorts of actors, be they operational stewards like rec managers or scientific officers or more ethics stewards like rec members themselves. Ultimately thinking about how can we refine what is already in place with our regulatory framework in the UK, which is working very well and is looked upon very favorably internationally to further improve um, the, protect, the protection of the rights, interests and welfare participants, but also perhaps even more importantly, think about how we can promote more of a research culture that is facilitative and indeed operating in a green light rather than red light function. Okay, Ted, thank you so much for sharing those insights and your research findings with us. And just a reminder to, to listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about Ted's work and everything else we've done in the Liminal Spaces Project, please visit our website. All the publications are open access and you can have a look at everything there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liminal Spaces podcast. To learn more about the project and to listen to the full series, please visit us at www.liminalspaces.ed.ac.uk. This has been a production of Edinburgh Law School at the University of Edinburgh.